I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Welcome to the show, Valerie, who's called AKA Miss Val, UCLA women's gymnastics coach and author of Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance, advice and inspiration from the UCLA Athletic Hall of Fame coach of seven NCAA championship teams. Highly acclaimed UCLA women's gymnastics coach Valerie Condos Field shares insights on how to use uniqueness and authenticity to achieve success. For Field, it's not about the X's and O's. It's about choreographing your life and owning the choices you make. The book is a thought-provoking, funny journey through the personal stories and anecdotes of the 35-year career of a dancer, choreographer, turned athletic coach. She's a four-time National Coach of the Year and one of only two active coaches to be inducted into the UCLA Athletic Hall of Fame. In 2016, she was named Pac-12 Gymnastics Coach of the Century. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, your book, and I'm going to call you Miss Val, has been... That's okay. Okay, your book has been described as brutally honest. And Mm -hmm. tell us why your book has been described as brutally honest. That's a great... I never heard that. I haven't heard that yet. I've heard that I am brutally honest. I haven't heard that it translated to the book, but I would assume it's because the majority of the book is written in first person, and I just, I wanted to make sure that it was an easy read, and so it's written in my voice, and um, I didn't make a lot of grammatical corrections and all that, so I could just keep the flow going, and I tend to be quite short with my responses to people, because I don't believe in a lot of fluff, and I People know that people that know me well know I hate small small talk. So let's just cut to the chase. So I think that's where people feel that I get brutally honest with them. Well, I'd imagine as a coach, you have to cut to the chase. There can't be a lot of fluff, or you're not going to produce winners, or you're not going to be a winner. Um, it has to be brutally honest, or you have, have to be, I would assume, brutally honest <clears throat> with your athletes, well, right? Yeah, and one thing that I share in the book that you know comes back to this brutally honest bit is, I one thing that I want our student athletes to learn while they are here is to find their voice, and to make sure that they are being true to themselves and their unique thoughts and their voice, and not to have to mimic or parrot someone just because they want to be the good girl, which is quite a bit of our culture in gymnastics growing up. So I try to break that them of that when they get here, and I tell them, you can say anything you want to anyone as long as you are being honest and respectful. And if you're not being honest, you're not being respectful, because if you're soft-pedaling what you're trying to tell them, what you're saying is, I don't trust that you're strong enough to handle the truth, and that's being disrespectful. So I think that's where this whole brutal honesty thing comes in. And the and the other thing that you just mentioned, finding your own voice, that was something that happened to you, as I understand it, like in your own experience, trying to copy other coaches who were great or you thought were great and not really following or making your own choices and following your own voice. Right. And that's basically the reason why I started writing the book in the first place is You know, people ask me what's the book about, and the real elevator pitch for the book is, it's how did a dancer choreographer 
become one of the winningest coaches in the world of athletics. And when I was first asked to be the head coach, the only thing I knew how to do was mimic other coaches because I knew absolutely nothing. I've never, ever done gymnastics. So here I am, the head coach of one of the most prominent programs in the country, and I know nothing about the sport that I'm coaching. So I just mimicked other coaches, and I did a horrible job. I took this pristine and prestigious program and plummeted it, and it wasn't until I had a little chat with myself and really started um, understanding and owning and coaching to what I knew. What did I bring to the table as a 17-year classical ballet dancer and started being authentic to myself that we started having success. And I remember a few years after I just threw out the athletic playbook and started being true to who I was, one of my seniors said to me, "Miss Val, you have finally become a leader worth following. Valerie, how did you get into it? How could they, I mean, you're talking about this, you know, very prestigious school, and you are not a coach. Well, how how did you get into it? Who chose you? How did you jump into it? (laughs) Why did they say, hey, Val, we want to coach our winning team, and uh, what happened? It's a real important life lesson how I got here. I was getting ready to start my first season with the Washington, D.C. Ballet. I was 22 years old. I'd not gone to school, and I really wanted to go to college, and I wanted to go to UCLA. And I heard via the grapevine that UCLA needed a dance coach for their gymnastics team. And without any hesitation, I found out who the head coach was here, and I found his number, and I called, up, I called him up, and I made the ask. And that's a, a, a big chapter in my book is about how important it is to make the ask. And not once did I have any trepidation in making that call. And I remember thinking the worst thing he can say is no. And why would I take that personally? So I had no problem making the ask. And when I told them my credentials, they flew me out, interviewed me, and offered me a full scholarship to go to school to be their dance coach and their choreographer. And that was in 1982. And then I spent... Um, eight years here, I graduated college, and I was still choreographing, and I was working on becoming a journalist, and I was called into the athletic director's office, and they said, we're going to make a change with our head coaching position. We want you to be the new head coach, and I literally laughed in their face and said, you understand, I don't know the first thing about gymnastics, and they said, we've observed how you work with the student-athletes. We love, we like the tough love and how compassionate you are with them at the same time, and we trust you'll figure the rest out. And that's all so I they, I'm going to interrupt. So they liked your style. They saw how you mm-hmm. interacted and connected with the athletes. But when, uh, you said you made the ask. And making the ask, I'm going back a little bit, because I think that's an issue that women particularly have difficulty with, whether it's in sports, whether it's in business. Like you said, what do I have to lose? That's difficult for women to do. So I think it's really important that you point that out because you're 22 years. Yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, quite a bit of the feedback that I've been getting about the book, especially from women, is they say I needed to read the chapter about the ask because following the ask is knowing how to nudge without being annoying. And I've, like, I'm pitching some projects right now and 
as I'm leaving the meetings, I'm saying, you know, when can I um, catch up with you again to revisit this because I don't want to be annoying. And every single person I've met with says, no, 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 please nudge me, please. I've got so much on my plate. I need to be reminded and I need you to nudge me next week. Um, and then knowing when to drop. So the, the whole chapter is about the ask, the nudge, and the drop. And even with the drop, that doesn't mean that you can't revisit it in the future. So, okay, so here you are, 22 years old. You've made the ask, and you're there, and they like the way you connect, and they like what you're doing, and you've had no experience coaching. I, I think that's obviously the Zero. part. Yeah. So what then, I mean, okay, you said obviously you accepted, but then you said you had a lot of difficulty because you were trying to emulate other coaches. So mm-hmm. the turnaround for that was was an, an evolution or kind of an an aha, an aha experience? It was an aha experience, and it came from um, stumbling upon Coach Wooden's definition of success. Coach John Wooden was our bas- men's basketball coach here. He's hailed by Sports Illustrated as the greatest coach that ever lived, and yet, and he had won 10 national championships in 12 years, and yet his definition of success doesn't mention winning. His defini- definition of success is success is peace of mind in knowing that you've done your best to become the best you're capable of becoming. And at that moment, I realized when I was trying to mimic all these other coaches, I was trying to be somebody else. And the aha moment I had with that at the age of, I was 29, I was 30, 30, 31 at the time, um, this aha moment was whenever you try to be somebody else, you will always be a second-rate them. And the worst part is you're spending so much time and energy trying to be somebody else. It prevents you from becoming a first-rate you. And so I went back to my cubicle. We didn't have offices at the time. And I thought, what do I bring to the table as a classical ballet dancer and that will translate to these gymnasts? And there's a lot. You know, there's a lot with not just learning how to work through pain and perseverance and all that, but how to be a young woman and have to get into a leotard every day, um, how, to go through pu- how to go through puberty um, in a leotard, having to do that every day, uh, body image issues, um, uh, yeah, let's disordered talk about the body. Yeah, I want to stick, but I think body image issues are really important. I mean, they women, are. that's another area. Yeah, um, like you're an athlete, you're a gymnast, you have muscles, you're, you're, you know, it's very different than maybe the body image that we young girls or young teenagers think they're supposed to have. Um, and they, I assume, have to deal with, you know, their body image in reference to that and being strong athletes. Um, yeah. Is that something you found with the, with the girls you were coaching? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them go through, not, I won't say a lot, I'll say a good number of them have not started their periods by the time they come to college because their lean muscle mass, their body fat is so low. And, um, um, and so that's a big, yeah, so how does that, well, there's a lot of things, I suppose, associated with that. I mean, a lot, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I realized I actually, I had a lot to offer. Like I had experienced a lot of similar things that these young women had to offer, and I knew how to prepare myself physically, mentally, and emotionally to be calm, confident, and excited when I was going on stage. 
And I could translate that to our athletes as well, if not better than any other gymnastics coach in the country. And so once I realized what I brought to the table and that I just needed to surround myself with coaches that knew everything else, which was actually the gymnastics part of this, that's when our team started having success. And what was the reaction, first, of the school, naturally, but also of the girls? I mean, everything changes when that begins to happen, and you begin, you know, having success with the team, big-time success. Well, big-time success, and um, it was really, I have a wonderful memory of early on as a head coach realizing that I didn't grow up in the world of athletics. So I don't have this DNA of win at all costs. You just got to figure out how to win. And I realized that I thought it was kind of silly that all of athletics, most people care about athletics because they care about bragging rights, being able to say, ha-ha, we beat you. And I thought that was so ridiculous to spend so much money on bragging rights. And so I went to my athletic director and I said, you know, I just got to tell you, this is not in my DNA. We're going to be able to recruit great talent because we're UCLA. But I don't focus on winning. I focus on developing this young woman mentally, emotionally, and physically into a, into a superhero. And I work on her life skills. And once we can develop those really strong life skills in her that we're learning through the sport of gymnastics, those will translate to the competition floor, and we will probably win. But I'm not focusing on the win. I'm focusing on them as a person first before the athlete. What about your your girls? Because let's talk about them as your girls. They're champions. They graduate. They go on. And you've had, you know, you've had a lot of experience. Do they come back to you and say, Val, this is what you did for me? Or I would assume that there would be connections that they would want to make with you after all of this, after they've been on your team. Yes. And when they've been there, you know, they've been around me that long, they start, they start, um, mimicking all of my mantras. You know, they know that the one thing that I want them to learn is that every single thing you do in life is a choice and the choices you make will dictate the life you live, the life you lead. And once you realize that you're, you can start owning your choices, which starts with owning your thoughts and choosing which thoughts to feed and which thoughts to starve, that's when your whole world opens up. That's when you stop being a victim in life. That's when you really start taking charge and choreographing your life, as I say in the book. And they all know that if you said, what's the number one thing Ms. Val taught you? They'll say that life is about choice and the choices I make to take the life I lead. That's that's so, I mean, I think that's really the essence of all of it. Is and, and I think maybe when you're younger, as you're saying, these young women and young men, but in this case the young women, don't really understand that it's not just one choice you're making, but that choice you make, as you say, impacts the next choice and the next choice and the next choice. They're all connected. I want to turn it around a little bit because I know that you, and I, I don't know exactly in your career when this was, but you were diagnosed with breast cancer. And you're saying that it was, uh, which is hard for me to believe, but you it, you made it one of the best years of your life. And so how'd you do that? Well, I'm I'm I appreciate you asking the question because I love giving the answer to that question. It was four years ago, on June ninth, uh, 
2014. And I got the call from my doctor that I had a very aggressive type of breast cancer. And I needed to get in immediately. And after I hung up the phone with her, I heard very, very clearly, be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. And when I tell people the story, I say, you know, I don't know what your faith is and whether you translate this as me hearing cosmic energy or the universe speaking to me, but I translate this as God speaking to me. And I heard it twice, be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. And I went home and I told my husband the not-so-great news about the breast cancer, and I told him about hearing this, and he said, that's from the Bible. Well, I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church where the Bible was in Greek. I'd never read the Bible. He says, go look it up. So I went and looked it up, and sure enough, in Philippians 4, it says, be anxious for nothing. And then paraphrased, grateful for all things. And my whole world stopped because I heard this before I ever read it. And I knew it was a commandment, and I knew that I would obey, but I didn't know how I was going to obey. And so the next day, I went to my oncologist, and she has this big smile on her face that I thought was very odd. And she says, you've gone from having the worst type of breast cancer to the best type of breast cancer, because had you gotten diagnosed 10 years ago, we had nothing for you. If you choose to get chemotherapy and choose to have surgery, I know it will work. And there was that word choice. Life is about choice. And at that moment, I understood the commandment of being how I was not going to be anxious by being grateful that I didn't have to get chemotherapy. I get to get chemotherapy because I live at a time that has the chemo. And that moment, changing that word, have to, to get to, in my mindset and my vocabulary with everything I did in life, has changed my life and opened my life up for the better. Every moment of my day. I don't have to come to work. I get to go to work. I don't have to wash my car. I get to wash my car because I can afford a car. And on and on and on. And Val, you, I guess what I'm hearing you say is that uh, you, you. It, I, it's just amazing to me that you could, and I wanted to really want to know whether it was really at that moment when you realized you had a choice, a choice you wouldn't have had 10 years ago, obviously, because of the new therapies, that you embraced it right away. Because people are, well, women who are listening and who get that kind of a diagnosis, um, you know, we would like more of us to be able to feel that way if we get that kind of a diagnosis, to really realize, you know, that, yes, you know, five years ago what's available now wasn't available then. But I don't think that a lot of women, unfortunately, do that. And there's a whole maybe period of time when they feel like a victim and depressed and sad. So, yeah. Well, you know, I th- um, thankfully we, li- we do live at a time where we can place our faith in hope. Because I have two dear friends who actually were gymnasts here in the 80s, and they both were diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer, and they're clear. Well, five, even five years ago, stage 4 anything is a death sentence. But we're living in a time where you can, you can have hope. And the thing with the, the, thing with the commandment of, 
be anxious for nothing. You really need to take some downtime and some quiet time and really think, is there any situation where being anxious is going to help? And the answer is no. I've even spoken with men and women in the military about this. And they even say going into battle, you do not want to be anxious because you don't have a clear mind and clear thoughts. And so for, for men and women who are diagnosed with a, a severe, potentially fatal illness, my advice is there, there's nothing bad that comes from hope, sincere hope and faith that things will turn out well. And we all know that doctors are trying to quantify the power of the mind and how positive thinking does affect your physical being. And every one of my doctors said that to me. We wish, they said we wished that we could quantify for you how much your attitude helped with this prognosis. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think we've, in the past sometimes, we sort of separate the mind and the body and that they're separate and that it's the scientific and the body and the chemotherapy or whatever your chronic illness is. But the, whole, the chemicals, the, the endorphins, all of those things affect the healing process. Right. Um, and, yeah, and I think, as you say, and I'm calling it mainstream Western medicine, is beginning mm-hmm. to embrace that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I even, I even immediately, I called it going to chemotherapy, going to my chemo spa, because that had a positive connotation. Because I was going to go to sit in a chair and have something stuck through my veins that's going to hopefully make me have more days. So that was a good thing. So going to chemotherapy wasn't a bad thing. I get to go to chemo, and I would call it my chemo spa. And my, my athletes would say, Miss Val, you don't have to put such a positive spin on it. We know you're going to get chemotherapy. I'm like, no, no, no. I get to go get chemotherapy, and that chemo is going to help me live longer. This is a good thing. This isn't a bad thing. But what do you say to people who, okay, when you're doing chemo, and that's probably a good example, because some of the chemo, it kills the bad cells, but it also kills the good mm-hmm. cells. And that feeling of like, what am I do You know, I'm poisoning myself at the same time. Speaking to many women who have been in that situation, that is something that they do think about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is, as we know, I, I was extremely fortunate in that I did not have the reactions to the chemotherapy that um, a lot of people do have. My mother had it. Uh, she died of a horrific bout with colon cancer. And um, I, I know that there were days where I just gave myself permission to be sad. Not have a pity party, not say, why me, why me? But just, it was okay to be sad. And through that permission, I would spend my day kind of like, doing whatever I could do that would make me feel better, which was usually staying in my pajamas and knitting. Um, but it's, it's tricky because none of us experience, all of our experiences are unique to ourselves. And so the one thing you never want to say is, oh, I know how you feel. No, you don't know how I feel. And I don't know how you feel. But I do know that, um, you know, I, I talk about it in my book, 
the Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, a little tiny book that uh, he was a prisoner of war uh, for, I think, four years. And he found a way to be grateful in that situation. And even and he talks about being in his cell and being able to see the sky. And he would focus on how grateful he was to be able to see this little patch of blue sky. And that... We can't determine how that intrinsically helps the body heal. But I do know one thing, it doesn't hurt and it doesn't harm. There's Great nothing point. bad and that comes it, out of hope. Yeah, and I, uh, the hope, and also I think I'm glad you mentioned that, The not just mentioned that you're talking about it, sad. It's okay to be sad, but sad mm-hmm. isn't anxious. Sad is just... It's just a feeling so a feeling that will come up. You will feel sad, but then you go on to next, and you can feel glad. You can feel a lot of things, but it's okay to feel that sadness. That's real. I think that's really key, um, as, as you say. And um, yeah, sitting in the cell, mm-hmm. and you can see a, you can see the sun, you can see blue sky. Well, that's you know that's the good stuff, right? Right. Well, we only have a yeah, we only have a few minutes left, so I want to mention the book again. Great book. Um, Thank you. Very, yeah, inspirational, inspiring. Life is short. Don't wait to dance. Uh, advice and inspiration from the UCLA Athletic Hall of Fame coach of seven NCAA championship teams. Give us a website we can go to uh, to get more information about you, what you're doing, Thank and also you. about the book. Thank you. My website is officialmissbell.com, and I'm on all social media. And um, I'm kind of all over the place right now. I've announced my retirement. So after 36 years, this will be my last year coaching here. Uh, Our season starts in January and finishes in April. And um, it's just, it's been a wonderful, wonderful few months. The book did really well. We knew it was, we knew it was a good book. I knew it was a good book, but I didn't know it would resonate so much with so many different people, especially moms. and leaders. I've had a lot of men comment about the fact it's such an easy read, but there are these little nuggets throughout the whole book that make that are very practical to apply daily, that are simple and easy to remember, easy to apply. So, um, yeah, I, and I hate to cut you off because I, but we. Uh, yeah, because it is a great book, and as I said, it really Thank is you. an inspirational book, not just for women, but for men. Thanks Thank so you. much for being on the show today. Great talking Thank to you. Thank you. I so much appreciate yep. the conversation. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. defines your success is it success in your business success in your personal life is it more money is it meaningful relationships how about your passion listen for taking care of business with host david wallach david's guests share their challenges and what they did to overcome them what if you can let your passion for success lead you to your success Taking Care of Business is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Lisa Snyderman, award-winning folk pop artist, playwright, and author, and uh, author of A Light in the Darkness, which is a memoir, Transcending Chronic Illness Through the Power of Art and Attitude. Living with a chronic illness for more than 10 years, Lisa Snyderman creates to heal. In 2008, singer-songwriter Snyderman was living the dream in California, but just when her career was rocketing skyward, a health crisis brought all of her dreams crashing to the ground. Diagnosed with a rare debilitating immune disorder, uh, she struggled to maintain a normal life with a body in revolt. Living with a chronic illness challenged her to see her illness or her chronic illness as a gift in disguise that has opened the door to new dreams, new songs, and new opportunities. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Lisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, okay, so living with a chronic illness is not an easy thing to do, obviously. <laughs> um, talk to it, and it's your memoir, and I assume, you know, we know why you wrote the book or wrote the memoir. Um, what is the, give us a, exactly what the chronic illness is that you've been suffering from. Sure. So picture yourself. It's six weeks before you're getting married. You're about to go on tour to promote your first album, and you're working full-time. And imagine you get a skin rash, and you get a dermatologist appointment, you know, thinking he's going to give you some topical cream, and instead he tells you you have a rare, unpronounceable disease and refers you to a rheumatologist. And you're 35. <laughs> so the onset for me happened in 2008, as you mentioned. And what this is, is that dermatomyositis is a rare progressive muscle weakness disease that, if untreated, attacks and weakens my immune systems and muscles. And I've been dealing with the challenges of managing this uh, since about April of 2008. And the worst was a flare in 2010 when I was hospitalized for about a month with complete muscle weakness and then confined to a wheelchair and forced to undergo rehab for many months to relearn how to sit, stand, walk, and eventually how to play and sing. Lisa, how common is this? I mean, as people are listening, they're thinking, I'm sure they're looking at their skin thinking, do I have it? Got a rash here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the statistics say around five to seven per million, you know, uh, people. So any, it depends on where you are in the world. But it's pretty rare as an autoimmune disease. But think of it like a rheumatoid arthritis or a lupus. It's in that same kind of rubric under, you know, MDA, if that makes sense. So what does it look like? So it, it depends because it's, part of it is invisible. It's a muscle disease. 
right? So you're not going to be able to see. The part that you can see is if people have the rash, it would look like a purple, almost like a heliotrope um, on the eyelids and on the knuckles and nail beds. A lot of times, you know, wherever, you know, you can get rashes on your feet and, you know, different places depending on where it spreads. So right now I'm dealing with the muscle disease aspect. I dealt with the rash for about five years. And now this has to be, a, a sh- obviously, I'm assuming it's a huge shock. Here you are, this young woman. As you say, you're ready to go to the dermatologist and get some cream and it'll go away. You're an artist. Yeah, and you're talented. You're an artist. What went through your mind? I mean, when, you were, when they told you the diagnosis, I mean, terror or oh, I'm going to be able to handle this. And obviously, it's a chronic disease. It's not something they say, well, we can cure it, so don't worry right. about it. Well, as I mentioned, I was just about to get married. So part of what went through my mind was I need to deal with this with my partner. And I need to tell my partner and be completely open and honest and say, do you still want to marry me? (laughs) Which I did. (laughs) And thankfully, I had, you know, picked the perfect partner because as I went through all of this, you know, he's been my pillar and my rock and, you know, my greatest uh, cheerleader and, and support. So part of it was, you know, a combination, you know, partnership. And the other thing is I went through different kinds of um, transformations. One was physical, dealing with the facts, especially in the hospital. And, you know, I'm not talking about specifically a diagnosis, but later on in the hospital when I couldn't move my muscles, it was that feeling of, you know, hey, I'm, I'm rendered totally dependent, right? So I had to think about and process how do I maintain identity. So with my physical crisis came spiritual, right? I had to think about who was I, and you know, and who can I still be? And how do I keep my dreams of being a songwriter alive, right? That's part, partly my story is that I'm dealing with, you know, darkness and, and DM by obsessively creating to heal. Um, the other part of my story is, cre- is becoming a light and a muse to others, Right? And, and saying, I'm going to use my story and share it so that I can inspire others, perhaps to deal with, you know, whatever transformations they have, be it illness, disability, or life challenges. Well, I think we need to hear that, and obviously we need to hear that from someone like you because so many people suffer from chronic <clears throat> illness, not necessarily yours, but there's a whole gamut, as you say, in a lot of autoimmune diseases. You're... Your partner, you know, your husband was really supportive, as you say. Anybody else who, because you're sitting there, I mean, it would seem to me, uh, alone at times uh, with yourself. And who, who's, is there other, other people there be, be empathizing in ways that are helpful yeah. to you? Because people sometimes do yeah, it, but it's I, not helpful. <laughs> no, you're so right. And I, I think that part of the life lessons, you know, that I've, gained along the way is recognizing when you need help, you know, embracing a support system in your friends, your network, don't do this alone, right? Nurture relationships. So in my case, I had that combination of people who I turned to, both um, who've been through some illness. So in my case, my mom and my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law has lupus and my mom has a, a slew of different autoimmune disease herself. And it's all about the attitude and, you know, how they present themselves uh, that have been modeled to me, right? So when I went through it, I actually kind of felt like I had something to look to because it's a choice, right? We don't have a choice over what happens to us, only how we act or react. 
So part of it is I can play the victim. I can, you know, live in despair. I can decide that you know, my dreams are done, you know, and not worthy anymore. Um, or I can say, what can I still do, right? How can I still keep these things alive? And I'm not also, I don't want to make it sound like there isn't any room for feeling, you know, whatever those feelings are. Hard feelings, anxiety, uh, feelings of loss, uh, you know, dealing with identity, as I said. The difference is, is not dwelling in that place. You know, it's okay to process, but not dwell for me. What would you say was your darkest time? Because, I mean, that's a really, I think what you just brought up is important also. Yes, you, you make a choice that you're not going to wallow in despair. But as we know, it's, it's, it's not all linear. You, you've been yeah. diagnosed and <laughs> there are things happen. Yeah, so what was, maybe give us an example of maybe your darkest hour and how you were able to get out of that. Yeah, the darkest hour for me was that complete crash of my, my body. My body failed, right? All of it. I couldn't move a muscle. So for me, it was surrender. That's how I processed that one. I had to surrender to the fact that I was not in control, right? And I also had to face things that were so hard. So, for example, imagine you're going through uh, your own journey in a rehab hospital bed where you can't get up, right? You're, you're confined to a wheelchair. But across from you, you see somebody who's in a machine who has to, or, you know, can't eat by themselves, a stroke victim, who has to use machines to go to the bathroom, who has slurred speech, you know, and I looked at myself and I said, I am blessed because I could, you know, I said, I'm going to get out of this wheelchair. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to recover. I'm going to improve. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, that all stroke victims are going to be resigned to be stroke victims. That's not my point. My point is I needed to learn compassion even when I was dealing with my darkest hour for others, you know, and understand that I had to be in a place of blessed, you know, and gratitude, or I would not be able to have that, you know, head and heart space to recover. And then you've gone on as you as you go through this pro- go through life with this chronic illness. Um, you are doing exactly what you said, I guess, is what you decided you were going to do. So you are, and I have the adjectives right here, engaging, empowering, connecting with young people, young adults and kids, and, and helping them and those who see themselves as suffering with uh, disabilities. How are you doing that? What are you doing? So part of my creating started as expressive. It was, what can I still do to keep my dreams alive? And that was writing songs, you know, uh, recording at home, doing things like that. And I soon discovered inside me that I had some more artistic creativity, and it took the form of musical audiobooks. And first, when I was, you know, making this creation, uh, I was intending them for young adults. Um, and then I started adapting them to theater stage plays, and I ended up having audiences and, and actors, you know, with young adults. So part of what I'm doing is expressively involving young adults. And the other side is on teaching arts is um, working with uh, students of differing abilities. So students who might have autism or other kinds of, you know, different kinds of abilities and doing theater, you know, to uh, help um, empower 
to make people feel more included. And, you know, it's basically taking theater arts and working with different populations. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And I, and I heard you say abilities, not disabilities. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's what you said. Differing abilities. I, yeah. Yeah. And I said disability, but, you know, I had someone on my show a few weeks ago who, I think it was a mom who had a, a son with a disability. She wanted to call it a disability. She was doing great things with him and involved in a, a lot of different things with other children. And I asked her that. I said, is disability kind of not a good thing to say? And she said, no. So it's just, I, I'm always <laughs> curious. Yeah. It, it's um, a hard word for me personally because I, I do identify as a disabled artist, and I'm trying to say I need to be okay as being a disabled artist. But at the same time, I, you know, I also acknowledge that saying disabled, you know, has different connotations to different people. Yeah. Yeah. What about, about, I I like to hear about the young people or the kids or any particular uh, perhaps story you can tell us about uh, any individual, any one of these kids that you really sort of honed in on and been close to and really seen great progress and connected with them. Yeah, that's, I think that's the take-home for me is that first it all started as expressive creativity and then it was an understanding that I have a gift that I can take from living with chronic illness for 10 years. And my gift is that I need to be able to share my experience with others so that others can share their stories. And that has sparked something which is really neat, which is a collaboration between artists, musicians, and and authors from all over the world, more than 50, that are also using creativity to help heal. So what's so neat is I started a community based on an interest for people to share their stories. And I recorded conversations with 45 artists that I called Conversations on Creating to Heal and had an event where we had a live stream performance, you know, of artists creating to heal. So what I'm finding is that there's kind of a need and an interest to share our stories in order to um, help others who might be battling something similar. The way I look at it is, you know, we all battle our own darknesses and challenges and illnesses, and many of us turn to arts and music as a healing path. And we we create, we record, we perform, we write to share our art, but we're actually part of something bigger, right? Because when we start talking about ourselves, it gives, it almost allows, you know, others to be enabled to share their stories because we're vulnerable. You know, it opens the door to, to continue to promote healing. Well, that kind of collaboration, which you've done... It also takes a lot of energy, and and here's I'm going to present the other side, and people will say, you know, I have a chronic illness, or I, you know, there's I have ADD or whatever I have, and I just don't have the energy to do that kind of stuff. I can't do that. I'm, I have to concentrate on getting well or just getting by day by day, and and trying to do all of that other stuff. It's not for me. What do you say to people like that? I completely understand because I live each day with limited energy. There's there's a term in my world called spoony, and you can look up spoon spoon theory. And the idea though is that we're generally say you have a limited amount of spoons, 
and say you have 12 in a day. And every activity that you do is an expenditure, and you only have 12, you know, so that each day you're only dealing with a limited amount. We all do, right? But that if you have a chronic illness on top of that, you have limited energy. But what I've been able to do is find ways to still create within limited energy. Then the other thing is that people think that, you know, creating has to be a physical manifestation sometimes. We think of art, poetry, music, right? Creating itself is, to me, is getting in touch with that inner spirit and that flow. For me, it's the place where time stops. You know, you, you actually don't even think about time because you're so in flow. And it's not that the illness disappears, but while you're in that space, you're focused on the joy, right? You're focused on something other than you and your ego and your illness. And that's where I would, you know, tell these people that even if you have limited energy, if there's something that you can do that brings you joy, whether it's, you know, whether it's something physical or if you don't have the energy for that, even something that you take in when you listen to music, right? There's been studies that show that you're actually physically healing your body, you know, which is fantastic to learn. So there, to me, it's all about just being in that head and heart space, not necessarily feeling like I have to put on a show, you know, I have to perform for others. Those are things that can happen, you know, if you, if you have the energy, but there's so many ways of getting in touch with yourself. That's what it's about. So you get all of those uh, good chemicals percolating in your brain, and they sort of bathe the rest of your body, and, ba- and your bo- rest of your body bathes in those. That's what I'm thinking as you're describing it, and it has, uh, and it's healing. It has, it's the whole healing process. But also, a second part of that, I want choices are really important. I think you mentioned that in the in the beginning of the interview, but. We all have to be, whether we have a chronic illness or not, be very careful about the choices that we make because we want to expend energy on the good stuff and not on the the, oh. the, the stuff that gets in the way. So I guess we, be, I mean, besides, we have to be cognizant of the choices that we make. I'm not sure that, especially today, where we're, most of us are running around trying to do a zillion different things, maybe half of which aren't really that important. We got to think. It's important to think about it. So you're using your energy for real positive gain? I I completely agree, meaning I don't have the energy to waste or focus on things that don't lift me, right? So I'll surround myself with the things that bring me joy. That's like, that's my place that I need to be in, whether that's the people, right? The relationships are very important to me. The art and the creativity, in my case, the... um, well-being, so I have, you know, a wire fox terrier who is my emotional support animal, right? Whatever it is that you need to surround yourself with, because, especially because you deal with that, you know, limited energy, it's important. I'm thinking of the word toxic or toxicity, and maybe in terms of people, it's difficult because sometimes you have a... We, you know, as one gets older, you have a lot of different kinds of relationships, and some of them are toxic, whether it's work or family or mm-hmm. acquaintances, and you have to kind of let go of those so that you can go on and and concentrate on the positive ones. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing. I, I would agree with that. Um, and I'm not <laughs> making it out to make to make it look like any of this is easy. Everybody has to find their own way and path. Uh, you know, some people 
are able to continue to work outside of the house and still live with chronic illnesses, a lot of invisible illnesses. I'm not, right? So, uh, you know, that changes my situation in, in terms of being home all the time. So it also means that there's a tendency to be more likely to be isolated. So I have to make sure to continue to make connections, you know, and communicate. But everybody has their own balance that they need to achieve. Yep. Yeah, isolation. That, that's a good, I mean, isolation, and I, and I think probably depending on what your Ill, chronic illness is, uh, some illnesses could put you in a situation, maybe if it's physical or you can't walk or you can, you know, those kinds of things, you, it's easier to isolate yourself. And so one would have to work harder to get out there somehow. Um, as you say, everybody's unique and everybody has a different kind of a situation. Um, what about relationships with, and uh, well, let's say your your spouse, your partner, because that has you know he said he's very very supportive. Um, you picked out the right you picked the right person, but it also there has to be a balance between the two of you. And um, as a social worker, I very often have seen couples who it's difficult when someone is living with someone who has a chronic illness, and that's. You know, and have they, no matter how much they love them or want to be with them, there are issues that you have to deal with. Absolutely. So this is something I can speak to as a couple with one who's maybe the patient and one who's the caretaker. A lot of different things have come up for us. One, open communication is really important. We need to be able to talk about what we're both feeling. Um, self-care for both of us. In other words, we can't pour from an empty cup. We have to keep connecting, even if it's different than what we used to do. So, you know, we might have gone out and done a lot of activities outside together, but we recognize that need to continually renew our spark. It's also uh, acknowledging, for especially the person who is sick, that your caretaker has needs and interests, you know, outside of you and outside of, you know, your home uh, and activities that, that I think help when your partner continues to do those things. So that, you know, he or she can still feel like his or her dreams are being met. That's huge. Um, you know, I think also support. So if it's understanding that the your caretaker or partner needs to feel heard, valued, understood. And also um, being able to acknowledge and be, it's the attitude that you approach your partner with. So as I said before, attitude of gratitude and appreciation, when approaching your partner like that, it makes it so much better for somebody to want to help them in any situation. This isn't just, you know, chronic illness, of course, but that attitude is not, instead of it being an expectation or a burden, it becomes something that, you know, you're doing together rather than something, you know, that you expect because he's your husband, he has to take care of you. You see what I'm saying? I, I do see what you're saying, and I, I think it would be very easy to get into a mindset, you know, I'm not well, uh, and sort of focus inward and not necessarily take a look, be aware that your partner, as you said, may have the abilities to do other things than what you're able to do, and they should be able to do that and to be able to have that kind of an understanding. Because I think when you do deal with an illness, um, it, it 
tends to make you focus inward and concentrate on what you have to do to get better or what you have to do to make your life better and, and sort of sometimes leave your partner out of the, the picture. So I think that's really good advice and, and important. Um, and that applies to anything, it, uh, you know, any st- young people, old people. I mean, it really, I, I think that's a very important point. I don't know how many you made, four or five, but they're good ones. <laughs> Yeah, I think part of it is is having gone through it, right, is understanding those needs. Even at our support groups, like there's a keep in touch group for my particular illness, and we've attended in the past together, and there are separate groups for, you know, the illness and for the, um, the even for the caretaker. There's an actual caretaker group. I think that's you know, so it. That's, yeah, like the ahead, AA Kim. model, for instance. You can go to AA, but then there's 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 AA for family members, AA for spouses. It's it's similar. It sounds like anyway, so that everybody gets mm-hmm. the support that they need. Yeah. Um, one other thing: why we we only have about three minutes left. So, tell us or talk to us about say with your particular and um, and you're going to pronounce it for me, Dermot. DM, (laughs) Um, (laughs) anyone listening who might want more information about the support groups that you're talking about or anything else related to that chronic illness, uh, where can we get it? So I actually developed a resources page on my own uh, website that you can go to alightinthedarkness.info forward slash resources, and I I developed a whole list of chronic illness and dermatomyositis or myositis resources, including, you know, the support groups and the uh, actual uh, organizations, you know, that deal with that. But for people who might not have DM per se, but are dealing with chronic illness, there's some great uh, resources such as Suffering the Silence which is an online community group, Our Heart Speaks. You know, there are places and communities that are helping to make people feel less isolated and be able to share their stories. Great. Well, thank you for sharing your story today. Um, Lisa's memoir is A Light in the Darkness, Transcending Chronic Illness Through the Power of Art and Attitude. I love that, Art and Attitude. That's great. It's a great title. Um, Lisa, Thank you, and keep up the good work. It's great. Thank you, and I'll I'll just leave you with, you know, live in your place of joy, share your story, and keep shining your light. Keep shining your light. (laughs) I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 